Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Cynthia, Cynthia Miller Idris, author of the book Hate to the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. Cynthia, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on our show. I was ready to start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a professor at the School of Public Affairs and the School of Education at American University. Um, I have been for a long time a scholar of youth subcultures, uh, particularly on the far right, where I have been looking for 20 years or so at how schools respond to rising far right extremism in Germany. So for many, many years, I considered myself really a subcultural studies scholar, a scholar of youth subcultures, um, but that work gradually became more mainstream. And uh, over the past four or five years, I've been much more engaged in in the conversations about the mainstreaming of extremism. So as, as the world went more mainstream in terms of extremism moving from the fringes, so has my own scholarship, I guess. I can see a lot of the legacy of your work in this book. What led you to write a uh, a general survey of the global far right today? Well, I had written a previous book um, that was really looking more empirically about what had happened in Germany over the last uh, decade or, or 15 years or so with the mainstreaming of extremism and its aesthetics really through the commercialization with t-shirts. So I wrote that book called The Extreme Gone Mainstream. It was really about Germany, about how youth um, culture had changed away from the racist skinhead look of bomber jackets and combat boots into kind of a much more uh, kid next door aesthetic that had coded symbols embedded into clothing. I turned that book in, um, which Princeton published, I turned it in just two months before Charlottesville happened here in the U.S. And so suddenly I was really called upon, I mean, I sometimes say I went from being, you know, a subcultural study scholar to like testifying before Congress. And that, that's kind of what it felt like. It basically was called upon to explain suddenly um, many of the things that people just didn't understand about the mainstreaming of extremism and, and the rise of the so-called alt-right and youth subcultures in particular around uh, online extremism and codes and memes and symbols and iconography. So I spent a couple of years really just explaining to a lot of people, and because I'm here in DC, um, that involved a lot of different agencies and folks thinking about national security. Uh, and what I generally found is that I was a little frustrated both by the lack of representation in those meetings um, from people outside the national security space. So I was usually the only person there who had a background in education, um, you know, which is really different from how things are treated overseas, where you have a lot of social workers and mental health counselors and teachers and educators embedded in these conversations. Um, and I was also felt that there was a lot of focus really on the top-down strategies of organized groups and um, that that's just not the way that extremism had evolved, that it was much more um, organically around um, kind of where, you know, the, the organic encounters with extremist content and propaganda, often online, sometimes in ways that had nothing to do with groups per se or organizations or formal movements. And so I really uh, was having a conversation with my editor at Princeton and, and said, you know, I feel like something has to be said and she said, why don't you write a book about it? And so that's really how uh, how it came about. So 
was it a, a, an effort to explain to people what has happened um, that that extremism is no longer a kind of destination that you have to go seek out, but really it's much more likely to come across your screens and across the screens of young people in particular um, in ordinary spaces where they spend time. You open your book by uh, explaining a couple of concepts that are really important to understanding uh, extremism, uh, right-wing extremism in the world today. And you begin by uh, having to define what you mean by uh, the far right and right-wing extremism. And I was wondering, in terms of opening our discussion of the book, if you could perhaps explain what you mean or, or to whom you're referring when you're talking about the, the far right. Well, I often describe the term the far right, the best bad term that we have available to capture it. I really don't like it. I wish there was a better term. We now in the U.S. are, are honing in on this concept of domestic violent extremism or DVE, which might capture it just a little bit better, but I feel like, you know, again, gets us away from that global net and dimension. Um, but essentially the far right has two major components. One is a set of supremacist beliefs, and that is in this country most typically expressed as white supremacy, but also includes uh, male supremacy, Western supremacy, Christian supremacy. So different kinds of hierarchies of superiority and inferiority that dehumanize the other and often position the other as an existential threat, an us versus them way of thinking that creates um, you know, a, a heroic call to thwart that threat. So an existential danger and a dehumanization. The other set of, um, of ideas that, that constitute the far right are kind of um, anti-democratic and authoritarian types of beliefs. So this captures the range in the U.S. in particular of unlawful militias, but also, um, you know, secessionist groups, other movements that are uh, that are anti-government uh, in their, you know, kind of rejection of the freedom of the press or the or rejection of the protection of the rights of minorities, for example. Um, so lots of different tenets of, of democratic life and democracy are rejected in favor of authoritarian uh, or, or suppressing the freedoms of speech or the right to gather, for example. Um, and so those two different trends do overlap sometimes. So you obviously have white supremacist, anti-government groups, um, but they are those are the two dominant trends that are out there. There's a range of other things that fall under the far right, sometimes single issue groups like um, anti-abortion groups that promote violence. Um, but really, those are the two prevailing trends in terms of where we see uh, the most anti-democratic and violent action coming out of and, and where people are really threatened in terms of harm, potential harm to themselves. Now, this is a threat that in, in some ways is, is, is not a new one, but it is very different today, given the level of engagement that you've already referred to in terms of your previous work, but that you address in greater detail in your book itself. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what you uh, describe in your book in terms of the role that, as you term it, space and place plays in mobilizing extremism today. Yeah, well, sure. There really are at least two major ways, I think, that space and place plays a significant role. And you know, obviously the, the role of online space, people talk about online space and online radicalization all the time. And there's good reason for that because we spend a lot of our lives online and, and we're just much more likely to encounter 
fragments and bits of ideology and propaganda in different ways online. Um, and they, they are more likely to show up where you are uh, compared to previous generations where it really was like you had to seek out a group and go join through a bunch of initiation rites and have a manifesto and a clear chain of command and organized group leaders. All of that kind of evaporates in the online space where you're just encountering a meme or uh, a video that kind of introduces you and can take you into a kind of rabbit hole of ever more extreme content. So, so there's a whole chapter in the book where I do talk about those online issues. But one of the things I wanted to do in the book is remind people that physical space still matters. And so I talk both about the concept of the homeland itself, which is for especially for white supremacist groups, but also for anti-government groups often, um, you know, very clearly tied to race, to ideas about entitlement to the land, who it belongs to and who should be kept out, um, what threats to the land there are. Uh, and so there's this, all of these ideas about whose space it is and, and how to use that space become to the territory and the actual geography of white supremacist extremism becomes really important. And um, we kind of forget that sometimes that when we're talking about homelands, it's not just defense of a nation, it's really a physical space. And we see that sometimes with ethnostates. And so it doesn't have to be a whole, um, a whole country, but a region of a country or secessionist movements or attempts to kind of carve out particular places that belong to particular kinds of people. So that's, you know, so it's really both of those things. And, and I think, you know, the last thing I said, I'll say about that is, again, later in the book, I, I raise this issue about there's some old school techniques that that retain a lot of power, like paper flyering, where we've had, you know, double the number of incidents over the last year of just old school paper flyering, even at a moment when so many people are online, just white supremacist content being held, you know, hung up on dog parks and stickers and town hall squares and college campuses and that, that kind of in your face, you know, um, propaganda can also really frighten people because it feels like, hey, these people are right in my neighborhood. They're right at my workplace. They're a block from the place where I buy my groceries, you know, or whatever it is. And so there's a kind of subtle threat to the physical space part of it that can be really even more disconcerting than some of the online anonymous uh, engagements. And those are the engagements that uh, you sometimes uh, see in the news or, or, or see in the discussion. But as you explained, that there is a, a, there's it, there are a lot there's things happening on a variety of different levels. And one of the ones I thought was most fascinating was your examination of how a lot of these extremist messages get normalized for their audience as a way of introducing people to them, of taking something that sounds outrageous and, 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 uh, you know, and, and sort of, you know, outside the norm and, and, and turns it into something that the people begin to think of uh, as something that is acceptable and possible. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how that happens uh, and, 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 and how it takes place within these, some of these various environments that you address. Absolutely. So, you know, I talk a lot about this, the movement of what we have called the Overton window, which is the, the window, if you think of a sliding scale of acceptable policy solutions on any given issue that goes from all the way on the left to all the way to the right, you'll have, you know, the, the example that's often given is, is like school attendance, you know, so on, on one end of the spectrum, there's the state should make no rules about school attendance whatsoever. Parents should get to decide if they send their kids to school or not. 
And at the far end of the other end of the spectrum, it's, you know, every child goes to a public school and there's no other option, no freedom to homeschool or send a kid to the private school, right? There's this range in between. And generally within any public policy issue, there's a window that the public supports in terms of what are the range of acceptable solutions like that we that we agree there's some balance of state interest versus private interest and so on something like immigration or border controls or you know what languages are taught in a school or whatever uh you know you'll have a critical race theory what we have you know these debates going on right now any issue um, there'll be, there'll be, you know, it attempts to move that Overton window, both from the left and from the right. And so what we have seen in recent years is tremendous success from the far right, um, really in a concerted way of trying to get, you know, what, what is called, um, you know, using cultural change to bring about political change. So to get people uh, to, to, come to believe in, in a kind of cultural norms around exclusionary beliefs, um, shutting the borders, you know, at prioritizing the rights of some people over others, about what history should be told. Right? And so there's been a lot of um, quite intellectual efforts on the part of the far right to move that Overton window. Uh, it, is, it has a strategy, it's called metapolitics, which is the embedding of you know, sort of the, the shift of the pre-political shift of, of ideas to get cultural changes rooted first and let the political changes follow later. So, you know, I was trying to explain that um, in this book in in really um, in language that explained how conspiracy theories kind of have been embedded and how anti-immigration discourse gets tacked onto anti-elite kind of language um, so that you know, the, the language about um, not letting elites dominate this anti-elite, anti-science, anti-academic kind of language that's part of populist thinking uh, also carries some anti-immigrant types of sentiment along with it. So there's a lot of really strategic embedding of, of ideas that would prioritize, um, in particular, white citizens or European citizens, if you're looking at the European continent, uh, rights over immigrants' rights, for example, and and try to preserve and, and maintain a kind of Western, uh, sometimes it's defined as Western civilization um, within that framework. It, the, you also go into how they go about this. And, and I thought uh, it was one of the most fascinating parts of your book, the, your explanation as to how the far right goes about the process of marketing ideas in, in oftentimes very subtle ways. And, and uh, you, you describe this in terms of, uh, say, uh, fashion. You describe it in terms of uh, association with certain foods. And, and I, was, I was reading about, I was thinking about how, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there, you know, there was a certain image of the far right. And it was, it was a very rough image. It was bomber jackets. It was steel-toed boots. It was, uh, you know, shaved heads. You know, this is where the skinhead concept, uh, you know, became a, a popularly associated with them and how you know as you explained that that today it's 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 a very different one. in some ways it's, it's almost a throwback to what you saw in in the 1930s which is this notion that by associating with a certain clean-cut fashion that 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 you fight you have a, this ability to make these ideas which might be off-putting to to a lot of people much more uh normal and and and, and non-threatening Absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, I think the clearest example we have of it really is Charlottesville in that Unite the Right rally in the days leading up to it. I mean, you know, all of those guys didn't show up wearing khakis and polo shirts, you know, by coincidence, right? They, they were deliberately um, encouraged to show up, you know, in very clean cut attire 
with suggested, you know, um, you know, suggested appearance because the the what the sort of organizer said was um, people are more willing to listen to our ideas, you know, if we appear presentable, right? And so, and I think they they know that, and it's very clearly been a part of a a strategy uh, in terms of from the top down trying to clean up extreme ideas and really make them more palatable and make them come in a package that's harder to reconcile, uh, especially for Americans, I guess, with what people hold in their heads of what a right-wing extremist or a far-right extremist looks like or what a white supremacist would look like. But the other interesting thing is it's not only top-down, it's also been really organic because as we shifted away from this kind of uniform style of what people looked like, um, of a really limited set of symbols or tattoos. And so, you know, you move away from that and anybody can create a meme and and you're not just waiting for someone to produce a t-shirt to have a coded iconography on it, but you can do it yourself on your own screen. That created a more organic bottom-up way of creating propaganda and, and producing fragments of extremist material as well. So I think it gave more control and it, and it, and it was a more bottom up approach than we often go, give it credit for. It's not just, again, the tactics of organized or strategic groups that are to blame for, for where we are. It's that it, it um, has democratized, if you will, the production of propaganda into the hands of sort of anybody who can create images or, or iconographies, you know, that, that produce those coded messages. So, there, you know, that's why you see these strange kind of people claiming, you know, and promoting certain brands that they feel like the logos represent them or the, you know, so they co-opt brands, they um, support brands because they think they will be politically aligned with their views because of something that a CEO or a vice president might have said. Um, so you get you get all kinds of strange things, the creation of of uh, of propaganda, but also the co-opting of other of, of brands as well. And as you explained, this isn't just about, uh, you know, normalizing the ideas. It's about creating associations with people who might associate those brands for different reasons to think that there's a certain common uh, commonality in, in, in their thinking. And also to uh, as a way of raising funds, uh, both in terms of bringing people on board and also, you know, taking the, the you know, the certain memes and, and, and turning them into uh, means of raising funds. Absolutely. I mean, the merchandise part of this has been um, a real revenue producer. And we've seen that in um, both the, the sale of t-shirts um, that come out of memes, you know, after let's say a shooting in Kenosha, uh, we saw that with Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, you see this with, um, you know, with merchandise that is sold in conjunction with mixed martial arts tournaments where uh, there are a couple of, you know, uh, far-right fighters who are going up against each other and they're selling um, merchandise. You see it with companies that are uh, may not have formal ties to any far-right scenes, but are sponsoring, this happens in Europe, um, will sponsor a concert uh, run, you know, from a far-right group, a far-right band, a rock uh, band. And, and so you'll see these different kinds of approaches, whether that's, you know, crowdsourcing of funds online or the actual sale of merchandise um, that become kind of revenue generators that are using these new ways of engaging and connecting online to actually physically and financially support the movements. You, uh, I'd like to actually pick up on one of the things you just mentioned, because you talked about, uh, you know, MMA fighters and, and you have a chapter in which you describe how, uh, that you have a lot of far right groups that have targeted, uh, 
MMA uh, gyms uh, or who use MMA gyms and, and, and fight clubs as a way of attracting recruits and, and how it's not just a matter of, of showing up and, and presenting a certain image, but as you explained, this ties into a lot of the arguments that a lot of people on the right make about uh, the need for uh, physical fitness and, and as part of uh, the form, part of the image you want to present, and also in terms of preparation for the, the, the future that they uh, say that people should be expecting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting. And the first thing, of course, that should be said is, you know, MMA is reportedly the, the fastest growing sport in the world. And the vast majority of of, of, you know, aficionados, people who, who uh, engage in various forms of mixed martial arts and combat sports have nothing to do with the far right. And, and many of them, you know, are tremendously offended and upset by it as well. So, but it has been co-opted um, by, by far right extremist groups and also by Islamist groups in some parts of Europe who have discovered that MMA is a, um, can be a very attractive recruiting ground to draw young men into into their ideological ideas because there's a lot of language first of all there's a kind of hyper masculinity and a valorization of violence and of combat and fighting and street fighting and so you'll have white supremacist groups who argue this is kind of the, the best way to physically prepare for for the um, apocalyptic end times that are coming in this in the supposed race war um, the street battles that are going to precede it um, but you also have, um, you know, a, a built-in kind of defense of the nation language around um, rejection of the mainstream and and an embrace of um, of toughness and strength and uh, and really kind of being a man and not um, and taking taking a you know to, to being a part of a fight. So in Europe, we really have seen the security services and uh, you know monitoring this and monitoring specific groups relationships and associations to uh, MMA scenes and their attempts to recruit or sponsor tournaments or live stream fights, um, sell merchandise and, and really build a kind of world around it. But, uh, but part of what I wanted to draw attention to was just in, in the States and North America, we have been slower to pay attention to it and to really be, um, be looking out for some of those warning signs. So again, it's not by any means, you know, kind of the majority, but it's it's one of those things where it's a subculture that's been um, sort of uh, valorized and, and taken advantage of. And and the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, for a very long time in Europe, especially um, far right and neo-Nazi scenes were really associated with soccer hooliganism. And, you know, these were kind of drunken, disorderly street fights that would happen in, around soccer matches and in stadiums. And this scene, the mixed martial arts scene uh, that's associated with the far right, really seeks to convert that to get these disorganized, um, undisciplined street fighters who are and, and convert them to a kind of straight edge, um, no drugs, no alcohol, very disciplined, um, almost military in its kind of training regimen lifestyle. Uh, and it's in that sense, um, it, it's it's like preparation for a kind of warrior type of life. And, and you know, Hitler himself was uh, a big fan of jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts combat sports and, and regularly praised it as a way to train soldiers who were better equipped than actual uh, training regimes could do. So there is a long history here. It's not a new invention. I was thinking, though, about how a lot of that today can be overshadowed because we talk so much about the online environments and, and how that seemed because of its 
relative newness to to our society in general how that that really does get a lot of attention and you do a, a, a uh, you do examine the online environments uh, in your book and, and talk about how the uh, how various uh, groups uh, recruit online uh, try to uh, normalize ideas online and, and and most importantly of course spread their messages online Yes. I mean, I think, you know, you can't write a book like this without talking about the online environments. And, you know, I had, there was a question for me about, do I even separate it out? I mean, I had this question about gender and I had the question about online environments. Do, do either one of them get uh, their own chapter? Because everything is so gendered. You know, I feel like in each of the chapters, there are ways that gender and uh, masculinity or issues of women's role play plays a role. And in each of the chapters, there are ways of, that the online environment an ecosystem obviously underpins each of these, even when they're in physical spaces. So ultimately, I decided to to write a dedicated chapter on the online environments and not to do it for gender, um, which you know I'll just mention in part. But it was because you know people I think expect there to be a chapter on gender, and then read only that kind of chapter as if you know oh here's where we learn about gender. So I talk about that in the introduction a little bit that. I wanted to make the point that all of this is gendered and it's it can't just be bounded um, and, and kept in one chapter. But I still wonder sometimes whether I should have had a separate chapter on gender to draw attention to it. Um, but to the point about the online uh, issues, you know, I think each of those physical spaces relies on. So the mixed martial arts, you know, they live stream tournaments, they they live stream fights, they have uh, the sale of merchandise, they sell tickets online. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which online ecosystems are required for the success of that, but it shouldn't detract from the fact that it's the physical engagement in space that really ultimately matters in that case. And I think we see that with higher ed campuses where, you know, you still can have a provocative speaker tour or someone come in the protests, the backlash from, from, you know, the counter protesters that happens. I mean, all of those things happen in physical space even if they were organized initially online or if there's live streaming online or if a video is taken and then it's subsequently uploaded to some far-right extremist site um, to share what's happened after they stormed a bookstore, right? There are plenty of examples of this where something happens in physical space and then it's it's amplified online. Um, I mean, the Christchurch attack itself, that terrorist attack, which was you know, a terrible terrorist attack in real life, of course, but was live streamed. So it's both things happening in concert. I mean, attacks, physical harm is done in person, but is often relying now on an ecosystem that's online to amplify and circulate that that terror. Now, you talk a lot about these various issues, but you also address how it is that uh, this these challenges can be uh, addressed by policymakers, uh, by uh, organizations, public and private, uh, by the public more generally. What do you see as as some of the responses that can be adopted to this uh, new global far right? Yeah, I've spent most of the year uh, since writing the book really talking and thinking about this. Um, and I, I find it a more hopeful place to be, actually, is to think about the interventions <laughs> and the response side of it and the solutions. Um, the, the main thing I would say is that I think, you know, when when it's clear that extremism has gone from the fringes into the mainstream, we have to also think about interventions as as targeting the mainstream as well. So for a really long time, you know, especially in the U.S., we've had a very securitized approach to 
the extremist fringe and basically thinking of it as if it's a tumor that can be, you know, isolated and kept separate in a few bad cells that, you know, as long as you, you cut them out of society and monitor them sufficiently, uh, it won't pose a problem. But I think, you know, and I promise I was using this metaphor before the pandemic, but but if you think of it more like a virus that, you know, has infected and can spread into the mainstream, you, you have to really intervene within the mainstream because once it's in the mainstream, um, once it has, has blurred those lines between the fringes and the mainstream, it doesn't help to just surveil and infiltrate and provide intelligence on groups. Um, it's much more diffuse than that. And so, you know, what most other countries do is engage, see this as, you know, what Germany called after World War II, defensive democracy, the idea that you have to, you can't sufficiently target an extremist fringe by focusing only on the fringe, you have to strengthen the mainstream against it. So um, you have to create resilience within the mainstream to the propaganda that will always come from the fringes. Yes, you want to also reduce what's coming from the fringes, but it will never be sufficient to only focus on the fringe. And so they have invested tremendously in civic education and uh, media literacy, digital literacy to help people recognize propaganda, um, to reduce forms of racism and promote social inclusion in ways that would uh, create more inclusive democracies that are more resilient as systems to the overtures of an extremist fringe. And so I think we're at a moment in this country where we have to be thinking about that as well. And um, it's just not in our wheelhouse traditionally to think about these issues from a resilient democracies approach rather than from a counter extremism approach. And I think it's something that we have to really uh, work on adapting. Now, you uh, this book was published in uh, 2020. And uh, in the time since it was first published, quite a few things have happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, 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 we've had uh, the outbreak of COVID you know, uh, play out, we, the, the, the pandemic. We've had uh, the events of, of January 6th and, and their aftermath. And, and in your, you now have a paperback edition of the book in, in which you uh, address these things. And I was wondering if you could perhaps explain uh, the ways in which uh, these trends have, have been amplified uh, by the events of the past year and, and the way in which the, 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 they've changed in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is remarkable. I turned in the first version of this book in its final form, you know, to head off to copy editing, like late February of 2020, you know. And, and so within a couple of weeks, you know, the world had shut down. Everybody moved online. Um, we saw a massive uptick in the circulation of white supremacist extremist propaganda during that time. A lot of anti-Asian hate the blaming of the pandemic on a series of conspiracy theories that were anti-Semitic, anti-Asian, uh, and just, you know, strange uh, 5G uh, technology or Bill Gates, you know, all kinds of conspiracies, the rise of QAnon, of course. And, you know, I would say, and then rolling from that initial pandemic uh, emergence into the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, and the backlash against that from an extremist fringe, uh, and then from there right into the disinformation around the U.S. presidential election, of course, ultimately landing us uh, into what was just about a year ago, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, attack on the U.S. Capitol. So it's been a year of tremendous, you know, a year and a half of tremendous um, changes. I would say, you know, mostly those trends that I highlighted, I think all the trends that I highlighted 
remain true and are still there. They've been amplified by uh, the pandemic, I think, and more time online and more, uh, more of the kinds of underlying preconditions that create vulnerabilities like anxiety and insecurity, uncertainty about the future that can make people more susceptible to conspiracy theories that offer them a black and white you know, answer to things, for example. Um, but we also, of course, have seen, you know, how easily people are apparently mobilized across uh, groups that normally would not get along at all um, or have anything in common, but had on the, on the day of January 6th, came together spontaneously rather uh, around what I call the lowest common denominator, meaning that they, they all believed in the disinformation about invalid election and believed that they were heroically called upon to thwart it in some way. And so you had QAnon, you had the Proud Boys, you had white supremacist extremists, you had anti-government extremists, and then a whole bunch of just regular uh, Trump voters, you know, who might not have ever joined up in a meeting together or agreed on any of their planned objectives, but actually on that day could could mobilize and uh, in really dangerous ways. And so I think that kind of loose coalition forming around events is something that I worry about with, um, you know, the midterm elections, the 2024 elections, these these moments of anger. And our response to that, of course, as a country is to lock down the Capitol, lock down, you know, I mean, I, you know, I often say, like in the days after January 6th, I thought about I was supposed to go across the bridge to Virginia to go for a hike. And, you know, I, I actually didn't go because I didn't want to deal with the military checkpoints on the bridge coming back. And, and that kind of calculation is so foreign to most Americans. Of course, there are people in the rest of the world have been living with those kinds of militarized, um, you know, lives for a long time. But if that's, you know, that kind of gradual evolution of um, getting used to taking off your shoes, and throwing away your water, you know, before you get on an airplane, um, we just become more and more accustomed to the securitized, militarized response to things, but it doesn't get us any closer to preventing it. And that's, I think, um, one of the frustrations of the past year. So, you know, a lot of changes, I would say the trends still hold true. And there's a greater sense of urgency now to embed this fight uh, against extremism within a charge to kind of protect and strengthen democracy in more resilient and inclusive ways. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. I, uh, so I run a research lab now uh, at American University called the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL. And um, we've spent the last 18 months or so, uh, you know, just uh, starting in March or April of 2020 is when we got our first external funding. And we've been running about a dozen different projects, testing all kinds of public health style interventions, meaning, you know, what would it take? What would we be able to do if we could equip the mainstream with the tools to be more resilient against an extremist fringe? Uh, and so we've tested, you know, uh, guides for parents and caregivers. We're working on things in higher education. We've done trainings for city uh, employees. We've done, you know, all, like all levels um, of society. We're kind of working on different sets of toolkits and, and um, videos, animated videos, uh, different types of strategies to reach people online and offline. And so far, pretty much everything we've tried has worked, which is great. And so we're now in... Uh, that was kind of our proof of concept phase. And now we're in this year, a scale up phase where we're trying to 
uh, get the word out and communicate it to the public and really scale up those interventions beyond the pilot testing phase to, to start to make a difference. And so uh, really spending a lot of time thinking about the prevention and intervention side and, and hoping that we can get some uh, momentum to, to start to move the needle. Well, it sounds like it's uh, fantastic work, and I look forward to hearing in the future about you know the degree to which that uh, h- how that changes the uh, issues that you've described in the book. Yes, I hope so. It's you know in many ways I think of the book became uh, like a agenda setting book for our research lab, and um, and then you know we've gone beyond it because extremism itself has evolved and has more adults and more conspiracy theories and other kinds of ways that it's that it's adapted, but. I don't think we'll be, um, you know, scrambling to think of things to do anytime soon. So there, there are plenty of, of, of tasks ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, Cynthia, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me, Mark.